So I'm going to bring you up on some news that's uh, happening in the next few weeks. Thank you, sir. On uh, November 4th uh, to the 16th, myself, my wife Sharon, Gord Giesbrecht, and Rick Weeb are all flying to the Ukraine. There we'll be doing, not just working with the local church, but Sharon, Gord, and Rick will actually be teaching in the local university. Uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, um, which is just a fantastic opportunity for us to be a part of. Uh, over a year ago, we were planning on taking a hockey team to work with the local church and to play hockey missions. I love the idea, uh, but how it highlights in working with the local church and the community in western Ukraine. And um, after talking with Gord for a bit, we got like 10... 15 extra bags of hockey equipment and goalie sticks and stuff that's been wanted to do donate and I got to try to figure out how to get there so um, the four of us are going to not only take our luggage but we're each going to take one extra bag and I'm just saying if there's anybody else that here in the community that wants to help out and help get some hockey equipment uh, overseas it's going to cost us a minimum of $100 per bag extra if that's something that you'd like to contribute to that'd be great I know Pastor Andre did a run this year uh, to raise money for the uh, orphanage, uh, which we'll be going to. We raised mattresses there. He's raised in excess of $25,000, $3,000. If you want to contribute to that, you can, um, because we want to be able to take more over to help the kids, to help the ministry of what's going on. And uh, we are actually really excited for what is happening. We planted a church. We helped uh, the local church in Lutsk plant a church in uh, a town called Rivna, which is actually the birthplace of my grandmother, and that church is still up and thriving. We'll be visiting that and preaching there. We'll be doing leadership and pastoral conferences as well. And like I said, the highlight is uh, three people going into the local university and being able to teach and uh, even share their faith. So if you can remember us in prayer, that's a great start. And if you want to help and contribute, all you got to do is when you go online or if you fill something out, just put Ukraine on there. And if you want to pay for the bags or pay, give something towards the, the, the extra luggage, you can just put luggage and we'll make sure everything is uh, properly uh, resourced that way. So today we continue walking through a book of the Bible. That's what we love to do here at Seoul and we go back and forth from series of different kinds back into just walking through. And First uh, Peter is our choice. And so I'm going to invite you to turn, if you brought your Bibles or your iPhones or watch whatever, watch the screen, but we're going to go to First Peter chapter 2. We're going to pick it up very clearly. Peter's writing to the church. It's a persecuted church. And he says, Therefore, rid yourself of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, whenever I read this passage, the first thing that strikes me here is the word milk. It's the first thing. And of course, my imagination takes me back to the very first Got Milk commercial on TV. Now, some of you will remember. If not, um, like how many remember the first Got Milk? It's the guy with peanut butter trying to win a history uh, contest on the radio. It was fabulous. Now, if you haven't seen them, just Google Got Milk commercials and sit back and laugh for, for a while. But here's some useless facts for you this morning. just want to share them. In, in 31 BC, uh, 3100 B.C., Cows and milk were used by ancient Egypt and other cultures as a normal part of their life. In the Bible, the land of Palestine was described as flowing with milk. 
which shows how important it actually was to life. In, in 1525, the first cows in the New World arrived in Mexico by the Spanish, and they were also uh, released into the wild at that time. By 1624, the first cows were brought to the Plymouth colony for the settlers, and in 1679, Jesuit priests bring dairy cattle to the missionaries in Baja, California. And there, milk becomes a staple of the local diet. In the 1850s, before the industrial area, nearly every family in the U.S. had its own cow. Can you imagine that today? Debates range probably whose turn it was to milk the cow that day, but I'm sure that was probably what was going on. By 1864, we had French scientist Louis Pasteur, and that's pasteurization. And by the early 1900s, it's required by law in the dairies across America. Did you know that 1912 was the year the Oreos were first sold? Right? 1912. And milk and cookies were never the same since then. Between 1950 and 1960, wax, wax line milk cartons come into use by most milk manufacturers. I still remember when the guy used to deliver milk uh, to our house in, uh, in glass bottles. We had cartons. You guys remember bags? Like, like all different types of things. It's, and it's manufactured differently all over the world. And from 1957 to 63, like most mothers, June Cleaver serves her children milk at every meal on Leave it to Beaver. Talk about manipulating a society. From 1993 to the present, the milk mustache, right? Gets serious street cred from anybody, who, from the models to pop stars who appear in any dairy advertisements. So why am I sharing these highlights about history of milk? Because when we look at this passage, these three very simple words, milk is the primary word in it. And Peter uses a metaphor about milk to describe something very basic. It's a very basic teaching about the Christian life. Now, Peter wrote this letter, like I said, to Christians who were suffering persecution for their faith in Jesus. He wanted to encourage them not to lose heart. And so, after reminding them of, of the greatness of their salvation in Jesus Christ in, in that very first half of chapter 1, he goes on to encourage them to be steadfast in this salvation by which they have been saved. This is that whole process. And so last week we looked at verses 13 to 25, and he stresses two thoughts to, to these persecuted Christians. First was this brand new life that God has brought about in them through Jesus was first and foremost. And then secondly, the types of things that they have to do to make progress and grow in that new life. And he goes on and he begins to speak of the work that the Word of God had already done in them, the Scriptures. And it's pretty clear that God had brought about a great change in these people. It's very clear. They've been born again into something called new life. Something transformed them. This new life was brought about... Uh, in them by God himself through the preaching of the word, the importance of the preaching of the scriptures. And now they have been given this new life. Peter is now giving these Christians very specific instructions concerning what they need to do to maintain that new life and actually cause it to grow. And so this morning, I'm asking that you look very specifically at the instructions before us concerning this new life that is found in the text. Yes, Peter was writing thousands of years ago, but he's writing to us today. 
And he's giving them specific instructions. And this passage with huge implications for our church at this particular moment in history is right there. And Peter's words are rich with insight. They're rich with, and deep with meaning. And if you have any interest in growing spiritually, pay attention to what Peter says because he is actually speaking to you and me. And if you haven't been growing like you would, pay even closer attention because Peter connects two things that we often keep separate. Mark Twain, he's quoted as saying, most people are bothered by those passages in the Bible which they cannot understand. But as for me, I'm always noticed the passages in the Scripture which trouble me the most are those which I do understand. Now again, his statement was a commentary on our passage. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? Last week we read uh, Peter's exhortation to us to, to be holy. And now verse 1 speaks of five wrong attitudes that must be put out of the Christian life. And so when Peter says, rid yourself, he uses a verb that was used for stripping off dirty clothes. So you got to get the mental picture, the word picture going on, on here. So if you're a Christian, you have to strip these five things out of your life. If you're a Christian, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Peter is saying, strip them off. Think of it this way. Becoming a Christian means changing your wardrobe. Right? And these five attitudes went out of style when you encountered Jesus Christ. First is the word we have translated as malice, and it's basically a general term for evil in all various forms. Malice is a desire, when you think about this, to hurt somebody with words or deeds. It's, it has this connotation, it speaks of a smoldering resentment that causes you to actually lash out to other people. In fact, it's the same word that Peter uses just a little bit later in his letter in verse 16. But what he particularly has in mind here, think, listen to what I'm saying, is a mean-spirited, malicious attitude towards other people. Paul uses the word in Ephesians 4:31 to 32, where he writes, "Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you." I like what one person wrote. They said that malice is simply loving ourselves so much that we hate others. The next word we have there is deceit. Now, Peter is a fisherman. And as a fisherman, he would have understood the word deceit, which really means to bait the hook. Right? And that's what you do when you play a trick in order to get your way. When you're deceitful, you lie or you admit the truth in order to gain a personal advantage over somebody. And deceit is a very clever form of deliberate dishonesty. I think it's a good way to think of it as manip manipulation, basically, where we love ourselves so much that we use power, we use power plays, we use guilt trips on other people and trick them into doing things our way. The word translated hypocrisy speaks of a, a different kind of deceit, one in which we love ourselves so much that we try to fool people into actually thinking that we're something we're not. 
The word itself comes from, um, you may have known, a Greek theater. It's referred to the practice of putting on a mask and, and playing a part on stage. Well, it came to refer this act of pretending, right? Uh, to have a, a holiness in front of others and, and other people who, uh, that we actually really don't have. And creating this outward impression of ourselves that is really contrary to the facts. That's what's going on. The word envy is translated of a burning sense of jealousy against somebody else. And envy is considered one of the seven deadly sins, as we've gone through that in one sermon series a long time ago. But one writer called envy the last sin Christians will confess because it's so ugly. Envy is jealousy at the success of others or happiness at another's misfortune. It's the poison of the soul that turns you into a resentful, angry, grouchy, miserable, critical person. And if you're self-centered and if you're self-focused, then we're going to be envious and jealous of someone who gets what we want. James wrote, he said, If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where, where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. And I think what's crazy is that all these things can be hidden deep inside us. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy. But they can't be hidden very long. They show themselves by what eventually comes out of our mouths. And so lastly, Peter tells us that we are to lay aside slander. Now that term slander literally means to speak down about somebody. It includes things like gossip and lies and backbiting and spreading rumors and passing along a bad report or taking cheap shots, even using humor to lacerate others. Disparaging comments, unkind words. You can slander somebody with a raised eyebrow. The unfinished sentence, the veiled accusations, twisting the truth to make another person look bad, using subtle nuance to give a negative cast, judging others unfairly and putting others down to make yourself look good. And slander is usually the fruit of envy. And because it's almost always done behind the back of another person, it is really the seedbed of hypocrisy. And so these rotten attitudes that we read in Peter, I, I just need to be crystal clear so that if you're going to walk away with anything this morning, walk away with this. These rotten attitudes have no place in the Christian life. There's no room for them in the Christian wardrobe. There should be no room for them inside the church. And interesting enough, when you take a look at what Peter writes before here, they're all relational sins. You might want to call them horizontal because they touch on how we relate to others around us. And simply by definition, they deal with how we respond to difficult people that we rub shoulders with every day. How are we all doing in this area right now? And then Peter goes on and he writes, he says, Like newborn babies, crave spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. We're to crave the milk of God's word, the scriptures. 
We're to crave that scriptures the way that a baby craves its feeding. Now, if you're a parent, and of course we had a couple up here, you know how newborn babies crave milk, right? You know, through the years, God gave us four babies, born in different places, years apart. Each of them, though, came with this built-in craving for milk. And for some of them, they've already passed it down to their kids. Grandpa, you got chocolate milk? (laughs) Of course, it's Grandpa's house. Drink lots. But in the middle of the night, my kids, they, they wanted milk. When you're trying to study, when you're watching TV, when you're trying to sleep, they want milk. As a matter of fact, every few hours, kids want milk. And we didn't teach them to like it. We didn't have to beg them to take it. It just came with them with this inborn craving for milk. And then they sent us notices when it was feeding time. Right? And if we were a little bit late in responding to those notices, the house was filled with sounds of insistence. And then when Sharon or the bottle arrived, what did the children do? They went after it for all that they were worth. And they didn't stop until the bottle was empty or their cravings were fully satisfied. And then they notified us with a customary belch. Right? And yet their desire is basic instinct and their behavior is instinctive. And they want milk from mom without having been taught to do so. And they didn't decide when they want food. They only responded to that basic drive. And that's what that most basic need is satisfied when they take in their milk. In the same sense, the Christian should be hungering for the food of the Spirit. The Christian doesn't always know what it is that we hunger for. Sometimes, right, we got this hungering, we got this thing going on inside of us, we just can't put a finger on it. And, 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 and maybe we're aware of a terrible emptiness. Augustine, he prayed, he said, you have made us for yourself and the heart of man is restless until it finds rest in you. And so the milk of the word is what Peter's talking about. The milk from the scriptures, like a mother's milk, it nourishes us from the life of the one who gives it. And milk for a baby is not a fringe benefit. No, no, it's necessary for life. And so by using this image, what Peter is doing, he doesn't mean that the readers were all brand new baby Christians. That's not what he's talking about. Paul does that in Corinthians. This is not what Peter's doing here. And what Peter means is that we are to be as hungry for God's word as a baby is for its mother's milk. And the reason is clear, so that you can grow up in your salvation. And it's an important progression here, because the scriptures for the believer uh, is to be like milk for a baby. That's the, 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 the metaphor that, that Peter wants us to understand. We need the scriptures like a baby needs milk to drink. And just as babies cannot grow without the milk, without the formula... We cannot grow without our scriptures. And so the key to verse 2 is that word crave, which means that this deep desire that leads to a vigorous action. A deep desire that leads to a vigorous action. That word carries the idea that we yearn for something to the point that it becomes a consuming desire. We should have a hunger for the scriptures. We are to lay aside the rotten attitudes that he talked about that hinder our brotherly love, that hinder our relationships, 
And that, you know, that's verse 1. And we would earnestly crave God's Word so that we can grow spiritually. That's verse 2. And we can also say it in a di- different way. You know, verse 1 describes the horizontal sins that we need to put off. And verse 2 describes the vertical uh, reality of spiritual growth and a closer walk with God. And here is Peter's whole point. The way that we treat each other. Listen carefully. The way that we treat each other, and this is so important for the church today, Soul Sanctuary and the church at large, the way that we treat each other has a direct impact on our relationship with God. And as long as we harbor these relational sins, as long as we harbor these wrong attitudes, we will never grow spiritually. And these sins are like the junk food of the soul. They choke off our craving for the Word, so instead of growing, we we just stay where we are. We actually get worse. You know, you can treat people unkindly, and you can gossip about them and harbor bitterness. You can have a sharp tongue, and you can have a critical spirit or the gift of criticism. You know, you can look down your nose at people who aren't like you, and as long as you do that, you will never grow spiritually. Not even if you come to church four times a week and go to a Bible study life group every other day. Because those relational sins will choke off the Word of God in your life. And that explains why some people can come to church for years and they never get better. They're just miserable. They're harboring relational garbage on the inside. They make excuses for their envy. They ignore their gossip. They make light of their cutting comments. They justify their meanness towards others. And I'm talking about the church. And they don't grow because they can't grow. And when your horizontal is messed up, your vertical will never be right with God. Because God has wired us so that our horizontal and our vertical go together. John says it very plainly in his first letter. He says, if anybody says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You know, we can't say, I I hate you to a friend or a family member and then say, Lord, I love you. Please bless me right now. Because frankly, God's going to say, no deal. It doesn't work that way. So look at it this way. What happens when you eat too much junk food? It messes up your appetite for that day, does it not? Your body, your health, even your mental health sometimes. Right? And the same thing happens to us spiritually when you indulge in all the relational sins that we glibly try to excuse. When you're angry or upset or critical or mean or unkind or speak cutting words, That's poison in your soul that chokes off your desire for the Word of God. When your horizontal is out of whack, our vertical is out of whack as well. And I think perhaps the strongest thing that we can say about the Bible is that it is the Word of God. But have you ever thought what that means instead of just a very simple catchphrase that's used in Christianese? The concept actually should blow our minds when you think about this. Because when we talk about the Bible, we're actually talking about the all-powerful, all-knowing, transcendent God who decided to write to us through mankind. 
And what could be more important? Think about how you would respond to hearing a voice from heaven speaking directly to you. It would knock us off our shoes. And yet I believe that we need to begin to approach the Scriptures. We need to approach the Bible with that very same reverence. If we really believe that the Bible is the Word of God, then it should be much more than a book that we're just familiar with. It ought to shape every aspect of our existence. It should guide the decisions that we make in life. And if God is the designer and if he is the creator of this world, if he made us and placed us on this earth, and if he has actually taken the time to tell us who he is, who we are, and how this world operates, what could be more important than the scriptures? And applying them to our lives and living them out, as, he, as Peter wrote last week, as obedient children. In verse 3, Peter begins to explain the problem. Well, explains the heart of the problem and the road to the solution when he says, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And, and I don't know if you see this in the book of Peter, but it all comes back to God again. Loving your brothers and sisters isn't about you or them. It's about God. Spiritual growth isn't about you. It's about God. When we're angry and bitter, when we begin to envy others, when we criticize those who aren't like us, when we pass along rumors, when we respond harshly to those who bother us, when we lose our temper, when we answer hastily with very foolish words, when we judge others harshly, when you answer your spouse with harsh, cruel words, when you are impatient and irritable with your children, when you have no time to be kind to the less fortunate, when you go through your day with a perpetual scowl, when we act like that, it's always because we have forgotten about the goodness of the Lord. Psalms 34, 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. God tastes better than sin, is what's being said here. And and revenge is sweet. We all know that. But God is sweeter. Sin brings pleasure, right? For a moment, for a season. We know that. But with God, there are eternal joys. And you got to get a taste of God's goodness. And and if you are born again, if you've already come to Christ and you made a decision, you got a taste of God's goodness. Do you remember that day? Do you remember that moment? What, felt, what it felt like? I do. I do. I, I, I still remember. I was, uh, I was a bad kid. I had pastoral parents. Bad kid. Didn't like church. Didn't want to do anything. I did everything I could to fake sickness, not have to go to prayer meetings, Bible studies, do whatever. So did you. Um, so my, my parents went away. Uh, it was a Wednesday night. They went away. And, of course, they figured me out because we, uh, you know, we, we had these things called TVs, televisions, and they had these big tubes in them, right? And when you turn them on, they get, the TV gets really hot, not, not like stuff like this, right? So my parents would always come home, and they'd put their hand on the back of the TV, and they would know whether or not I was watching TV or not, right? And, of course, I'd lie to them and say no. I was so stupid. So one day, of course, uh, 
I didn't want to suffer the wrath of mom or dad. And I didn't watch TV that Wednesday night. And I thought, well, what am I going to do? I'm bored out of my tree. And, you know, homework was against my religion at the time. And so I, I picked up my Bible and I started reading. I started reading my Bible. And I started bawling. And at that moment, I had this understanding that I've never made a profession of faith. Yes, I grew up in the church, but I realized at that point in time, I was a sinner. And my, I heard the car roll up on the driveway, and I'm bawling. I'm just a mess. I can't explain it. It's just the Holy Spirit just came over me, and I was just a mess. And I run to the back door as I hear the door unlocked, and you know, of course, Dad has to park the car in the garage, but Mom comes in first, and I go, Mom, Mom, and through my tears and through my snot, I just, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. My mom looks at me and goes, you're not sick, just get back to bed. <laughs> no, 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 I'm a sinner, I'm a you're not sick, get back to bed. So, of course, this is the dialogue between mom and I. Dad comes walking in, and I think dad had the gift of interpretation. He was able to figure out what was going on, and then, no, 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 no that's not what he's saying. Liz, Liz, he's saying he's a sinner. Of course, my mom repented right there on the spot, and... Uh, but I knelt there in the kitchen with my parents and accepted Christ. That was my first pivotal moment. Others, you all have your own stories. For some of you, it was a moment. For some of you, it was gradual. But there comes this time when we remember, or maybe you had a, a, a secondary experience where the presence of God was so strong in your life. He revealed himself in such a way, maybe it was through grief, maybe it was through celebration, maybe it was through a quiet time. But do you remember what it felt like to finally be free? And I think some of us have forgotten what we were like. And some of us have forgotten where we have come from. And we've forgotten the pit where we were before Jesus actually came to rescue us. But when you forget God's goodness, it's easy to become critical and judgmental of others. Your bitterness will kill your appetite for his sweetness. Or his sweetness will dispel your bitterness. But you can't have both at the same time. And what Peter is saying is that the horizontal is key to the vertical. And the vertical is key to the horizontal. And who's it all about? God. Now maybe some of you are sitting there thinking, well, after all that, Jerry, I guess i got to be perfect before I can even pick up our Bible and read it. Well, no. No, no, that's not the case. It's not a matter of cleaning up your act before you can hear the Word of God or begin to study the Word of God. Rather, it's a matter of laying aside these things that that Peter has listed, that keep us from humbly receiving the word of God and allowing it to cleanse us. James puts it this way. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Oh gosh, doesn't our culture need that today? Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So he goes on and he adds, So therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word, the word, the scriptures, planted in you, which can save you. And so one of the things we have to do 
is we've got to get things out of our lives that keep God's Word from having the benefit in us that He wants it to have. And so, to put it simply, we need to drink our milk. And that that necessary milk, obviously, is the Scriptures. It's the Word of God. And so this morning, passages tells us to, to crave the pure milk of the Word so that we will grow in Christ And this is part of living out the command that Peter talked about earlier to be holy. How do I be holy? Well, get rid of this stuff because he addresses it. Remember, he's writing a letter. They're getting it all coming in. He addresses it. He says, be holy. Well, how how do I do that? Well, get rid of these five. Change your wardrobe. Start working on this stuff with everybody else and start getting into the Scriptures. And this is why Peter compels us to be holy in our behavior, in our conduct, our active life, especially in relationship with other people. This means we should make holiness actually our trademark. In other words, godliness should be our reputation in the world. I'm not sure that's where we are now in our culture as Christians. You know, if we've been saved by the grace of God from a life of sin and destruction, then our present calling is to let that same grace empower us to live in such a way that we actually um, reflect the righteousness of God to an unrighteous world. And so growth is natural for the believer. It's not God's plan for us to remain in the same level of infancy when we first began to believe in him. It's the plan is to grow, to mature. He wants us to increasingly walk as his son Jesus walked, to think as Jesus thought, to speak in, as, as he spoke, to do as he did. And in order for us to mature into the image of God's son, our soul needs that nourishment that God the Father himself has provided for us. And that nourishment, people, comes from the written word. It comes from the scriptures. Are you dissatisfied in your Christian walk? Well, when's the last time you read the Bible? Well, I really struggle with it. Well, listen, there's tons of us on Well, there's not tons of us on staff. Let me rephrase that. There's a few of us on staff that would love to sit down and just help and guide you. We have life group leaders that will help guide you, direct you, for you to get that nourishment. Well, I find it so difficult and hard. Yeah, get in line. But do you want to have a stronger faith? You need to be nourished by the Scriptures. Romans 10 says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Do you want to live a more holy life? Well, then you need to be nourished by the Scriptures because Psalms 119 says, how can a young man cleanse his way by taking heed according to your Word is the answer. Do you want to be wise in spiritual matters? Well, then you need to be nourished by the Scriptures because Paul writes that the Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Growth takes work, but it can be yours. In fact, you have everything you need in the Scriptures. How do you know that? Well, Paul writes it very simply in 2 Timothy. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. There it is. Sorry, I just jumped ahead of my notes here. God's grace needs to work in our hearts. 
And as God's grace begins to work in our hearts, it should move us towards obedience to him. The scriptures are very clear on some areas of what we shouldn't be doing as Peter just laid out. Scriptures are also not clear in other areas. And I think we have to be big enough to recognize that and begin to move in that direction. So what's the first step? I think the, the first step, when it comes right down to it, is, is personal. It's between you, you and God. It's between me and God. The first step is you and I going, okay, God. Um, and I think Jordan said it beautifully, an awareness of sin. Is there awareness of sin in our lives? God comes to you in his grace, and when God begins to speak to you and he reveals himself to you, maybe it's through song, maybe it's through music, Maybe it's through discussion, but you feel the Holy Spirit working on you. He, he comes to you in his grace, and he makes you aware of your sin. And awareness of sin is always the result of being visited by God's grace. In other words, it's a good thing. Because sin blinds us. And that awareness of God's grace is followed by this next step called conviction. And conviction is a, a ministry of the Holy Spirit that makes us uncomfortable with our sin. So I had an awareness of sin when I began to read the scriptures. I had an awareness of it. I also had a conviction of it. That conviction propelled me to actually have a physiological response and begin to cry, knowing that I was a sinner. And then that conviction is um, followed by a confession. We confess. And, And confession is leaving blame shifting, leaving excuses before holy God. And I did that confession with my parents. I confessed to them I was a sinner. Then we went on our knees and prayed and admitted the way that I was living is wrong. And now confession is followed by this other thing called repentance. And what's repentance? Repentance is a change of heart that leads to a change in a direction in life. And so now I have turned from a me-centric way of living to the pursuit of a, well, not my kingdom or my purposes or my law, my will and my way, but rather by God's grace, I recognize that's wrong and I confess that's wrong and I've committed myself now to a new way. And what's the epicenter of that new way? Keeps coming back to the scripture comes back to the two greatest commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. God and each other. And so when I move away from that selfish way and give my heart to God's new way, I have now begun to clear my heart to give it to God's call of love. We live in a self-love world. And this is why the Christians need to rise up and love others. Jesus came so that you would not, what? Live for yourself. And so actually what Peter is doing is reminding you and me of the work of the grace in our hearts. If you're a believer, if you had experience with God, God's work of grace rescues you from your selfishness so that you are now ready and your heart is ready to be cleansed and ready to love. And so what should your response be? It's very easy to love sincerely, earnestly, with a pure heart. And made by God's grace, people, 
made by God's grace, may we follow his commands and live in that love. Walking through this book, and my hope and prayer is that you would be convicted that the scriptures have been given to us by God as the necessary food for the nourishment of our souls and for the growth of our relationship with Jesus. And that you would place a high priority on spending time, quality time, every day in the reading and studying of his word. And then the next step is that you would be very intentional in cleaning this up. So let me ask you the question. Who do you need to clean some stuff up with? Because frankly, it's always the Holy Spirit who does that. He speaks to us. I want to transition into our celebration of the Lord's table. And uh, if you've not done this before, it just takes a little bit of skill and effort, of which I lack greatly, to sort of peel off the top layer and reveal the wafer. And then, of course, the bottom layer reveals the grape juice or wine. I'm not sure what we have in these cups. They're probably old enough to be fermented, but I'm just saying. I miss the day when I watch you guys walk into the cross. I can hardly wait. When we can do the supper with a little bit of normalcy. But you know what blesses my heart is the fact that we're in this auditorium together and we can participate. Since the days of the New Testament, Believers have joined in with this beautiful observance, and so we do so today. And, and we do so, and I hope we do so in unity, knowing the fact that there are churches all over the globe today who are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, just like we are today. And communion, or the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist is at the very heart of what it means to be a believer. The communion service, if you call it, can be the most beautiful and important moments in the life of a church. And it's difficult to find a moment in Scripture quite as powerful as the Last Supper. When Jesus shared the Passover with his disciples and, you know, while bringing about its fulfillment, this is what it was all about. And that Passover meal is observed annually. As a Jewish people um, progress through the meal, they relive the, the moment that God delivered them from slavery. Many times throughout Scripture, God describes and defines himself as the God who has led you out of slavery. And yet this particular night, something different happened. And Jesus takes this familiar observance, the Passover meal, an observance of freedom of, of, uh, from physical slavery. He re- redefines it to include freedom from spiritual slavery, a freedom that can only be found through him. And so as a church, as Soul Sanctuary, our observance of the communion table is both a blessing and a biblical mandate. As one of the ordinances given to us by Jesus. And as I said, it's, it's universally observed by almost every Christian denomination. And whether our communion services are ornate or simple, traditional, modern, 
live or on the internet. It's important that we make the most of this observance and create a thoughtful and meaningful experience that truly reveals the power and the beauty of the table, of what we're about to participate in. Now, before we move ahead, we have just heard the Word of God preached. And so maybe, maybe, maybe some of you need some spend some time to get things right with God. Maybe one of those five hit your heart relationally. Ask the worship team to sing, to lead us in worship. If you want to sing along, feel free. If you just want to bow your head, feel free. But let's focus on what the Spirit has been saying to us.
1 Corinthians uh, 11, 17 to 32, or 22, sorry, states that, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. Because when you come together, it's not for better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. In other words, a little bit tongue-in-cheek. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, no, I, I will not. So the early church got together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It was this communal meal. It really was. It was just like Jesus and his disciples around the table. Now the problem was that they weren't actually sitting down together as a church because of the divisions in the church. And the divisions were over the loyalties of one apostle over another, or social class, and other types of divisions, economic divisions. And, and so when they were coming together, some people would have their fill, thinking, well, it's just about the food, it's not about the communion that they were to have together with God. And so some people came early, they ate and they drank, maybe a little bit too much, all too much, or they ate all the food. And then the other groups would come in and there would be nothing left over, or very little. And Paul tells these people that, you know, you're eating everything, you're drinking everything, and you despise the church of God, and you humiliate others, those who have nothing. And this is the context in which Paul's writing to the passage. This is the problem that he's addressing. And then he states in the next few verses, For I have received from the Lord what is also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so he's reminding the readers or the listeners of his letter that the practice of the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, the communion table, is a congregational, horizontal practice. It's not something that should be subject to the whims of certain individuals or groups. He's reminding them that right from the beginning when this act was done together as the disciples of Jesus, and of course, at the very end, he emphasizes that the act done together is the proclamation of the Lord's death until he comes. The implication, of course, is that the, what the Corinthian church was doing was not properly proclaiming the Lord's death because they weren't doing it together. And so Paul goes on, he continues to write, and he says, Well, whoever therefore eats of the bread, drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anybody who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anybody is hungry, let him eat at home. Now for Paul saying, let a man examine himself was a reminder to remember what communion was really about. 
to proclaim the Lord's death together. He was reminding them that this communal act is just that. It's a communal act and was so since its inception. And so he's telling them, look at guys, suppress your appetite, eat together, put your brothers and sisters first. Make sure your horizontal relationship is in order. But in most churches today, we ignore the original context of actually this one line, and we tend to underemphasize the communal aspect of this meal, and we make this line just about getting individually right with God. But it's communal. Yeah, there's this. But there's this because there's this. I just wanted to point out that it's more today. Luke 22, 9 says that while they were eating, Jesus took the bread. He gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so as you take your bread, remember that the body of Christ is broken. If you want to break the wafer to hear the sound. The body of Christ that is broken for us. And we remember the stripes that he took on his behalf and he suffered under the lashes of the soldiers. We remember his betrayal, we remember his crucifixion, we remember his death. And there's nothing supernatural about this bread itself, but it's a strong reminder of who the Savior is and what he did for us. And so this morning, soul, as we take the bread, as we enter into a solemn moment as a community, either live or online, Together, we give thanks. Give thanks, and let's eat together. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. You know, we often sing songs, maybe you remember some of the hymns, power in the blood, the blood that can cleanse our sins. That's truth that is certainly worth singing about. And I think as we drink the cup, we recall that aside from the blood of Jesus, we have no hope, we have no peace, and we have no salvation. And it's through his blood that we are truly made free and made whole. Let's drink together. I've asked the band to sing. Will you stand with me? Will you sing, please?
As believers, we're part of something that is eternal. We're part of a story that God has been revealing piece by piece over time. And through communion, when you think about it, we're actually joining with Jesus himself. But also with one another, with believers throughout the century when you think about it. And yet with believers yet to come after us. And it's a beautiful moment that unites us as the bride of Christ, the church. And so, Lord, we thank you again for the truth of your word. We thank you that it welcomes and calls us to the things that we would maybe not choose for ourselves. And we thank you that you rescue us by your love so that we can be part of your great company of love. God, may we love sincerely with earnestness of heart and purity of motive for the sake of your people, for the furtherance of your kingdom, and to praise your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Again, if you want to help us out with going to Ukraine, um, if you haven't followed me on social media, you can because uh, November 4th we fly out and then I will be living it. It's, for some of you, you may want to turn off your lives and notifications for me as per the request of others. But uh, we'll keep you up to date with everything that is happening. And if you want to donate and give, like I said, we're going to the orphanages. We're also going to jails. A, a jail, sorry. Uh, I plan to get out, but we will be visiting. And uh, lots of other stuff. So, Soul Sanctuary, in ancient times, the one who blessed extended his hands for his blessing. Those receiving a blessing did likewise. So Soul Sanctuary, here it goes. As you go about your regular daily lives, may the grace of God that we've been offered propel you to take action. May the hope of Jesus be displayed through holiness in your actions. And may the Holy Spirit walk with you in his ways. Soul Sanctuary, may this church be a house of overcoming. May we be people who show what it means to be Christians. So lay aside evil, long for the word, grow up spiritually, and live the life. Now, dear brothers and sisters, go and live the church and drink your milk. Amen. Be blessed. We'll see you next week.